You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we caught up with Woodford Reserve's global ambassador, Mr. Tom Vernon himself, who shed some more light on his love of American whiskeys during his recent trip to Singapore and guest shift in our bar. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats became the greats. So enjoy. Tom Vernon. I'm the Global Brand Ambassador for Woodford Reserve. Great to have you here, Tom. Thank you so much for coming and finding the time to be podcasted today. Thanks for having me. How is Singapore treating you so far? It's treating me really well. Thank you very much for my hot dog. Nice cold beer. And now we're sitting overlooking the harbour and recording this. So it's all been great. Tell us a little bit. You come uh, from the UK. Mm -hmm. How did you get into American whiskey? Um, I always kind of had um, an affiliation with American whiskey from the first time I ever set foot on a bar, uh, maybe a little bit before that as well. I remember losing a bet in a pub with my dad uh, when I was slightly younger than legal drinking age. And there was an old pub game called Spoof. Um, and I lost and the loser buys a round of drinks. And he made a round of Manhattans that I paid for and he told me I wouldn't like it. And that was the first kind of experience I had with American whiskey and I loved it. And then from there, I started curating wine and spirits at Fortnum and Mason's in London uh, on my gap year when I was about 18. And I just kind of went from there, really. Just I always had a great passion for it, great taste. Uh, it's just something that I was naturally drawn to. And then I've grown from there in the industry. What, what's spoofing exactly? Spoof is a, <laughs> it's a really complicated uh, coin game. Well, it's not that complicated, but you it's all about bluffing. So you hold the coins behind your back and... It goes from like however many people you have to the last two people in, and then the loser has to buy the round for everybody. Uh, it was very late at night. Uh, I remember it was the night before I moved to London for the first time, and I lost. And my dad had to pay for the round for me because he was playing as well. Um, but we had Manhattans, so yeah, it was uh, maybe it was meant to be. Who knows? <laughs> Do you remember what whiskeys you had, or not really? Uh, I can't remember. I. I really can't remember. All I know is that the, the landlord who owned the pub is a good family friend and he loves American whiskey. So, yeah, it was good. <laughs> so, which one was your first uh, job in a bar? My first job in a bar probably wasn't really a bar. It was more in the kitchen. So, I was like 15 years old. I was washing dishes in my local pub where I lost that bet. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you so, were... <laughs> so, it all kind of spiraled from there. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was washing dishes and then I was pulling a couple of pints and... It was a very kind of village mentality, but that mentality of looking after people was something that I really loved. Um, your regulars, uh, the people that you saw every day, and despite being in the kitchen, um, just knowing what people liked, uh, what they used to order, that kind of thing. And I carried on during university, and I had the privilege of meeting Declan McGurk, mm-hmm. uh, that we talked about earlier. And he took me under his wing, and he taught me a great deal not only about bartending, but about drinks, um, about life, how to conduct yourself, how to look after guests. And from there, it just kind of went from strength to strength. So my first real bar job, I would say, was in a bar called Skippy's in Leeds. Um, very, very lovely man called Robert Jupp, who the bar was named after. And Declan was the uh, head bartender for the group. So I owe a great deal to him and another gentleman by the name of Jake Berger, who also showed me a, th- a thing or two. N- number one, Jake. Number one, Jake, indeed. 
Did, did Jake work at Skippy's or not? No, he didn't. He was running Jake's in the center of Leeds okay, at okay, the okay. time. So that was seen as like the go-to cool bar. And they were really changing the kind of fabric of the city. And I was really lucky that I grew up um, with some really cool people like Mal Evans, uh, Cy Ord, Jake Berger, um, Skippy, Declan. There was a real kind of wealth of bartending aristocracy in the north of England at that time. And I was at university at Leeds, so I really tapped into that and was was lucky to learn a great a great deal from them. And then eventually that brought me down to London after university. What were the main differences in between London and uh, Leeds in terms of bars? Um, it's a kind of difference in people, I would say, more than anything, because it's a different mindset of people, northerners versus southerners. You talk to any northerner, they'll tell you they don't like southerners. You talk to southerners, Vice they don't like southern, northerners. Yeah. You know, it's the same with everything. Um but it's just more a mentality thing. I think the the bars were great. It was a real sense of community, neighborhood. And that's the same in London. But I feel like London, you can walk into anywhere and get great service. Um, but there's a difference sometimes in service in the north. It's a real genuine northern hospitality thing. Um, but they're both, they're both different and they're both the same, if that makes sense. So why did you move uh, to London? Was it because of your studies? Uh, no, I actually moved. So I was um, working in Leeds and then the Portobello Star was operating mm-hmm. uh, at the old venue on mm-hmm. Portobello Road. And I had some conversations and uh, I went down there to manage the venue. Uh, I moved down to London and took over the star for the best part of a year and a half there or thereabouts. Um, had a great time. I met some amazing people, really sort of got into London and, and found my feet. And then I moved back up to the north of England again, actually. I moved to Manchester and was running a bar called Socio Rehab, very, very famous mm-hmm. old bar that's not open anymore. Very dangerous drinking establishment. Uh, like a lot of the bars in Manchester. Yeah, exactly. Right, It's got that kind of stigma, but it was, a, it was a real privilege to work there. And from there, I started working with um, Bacardi Brown Foreman, actually, which opened the door to working with some great American whiskeys, um, Jack Daniels, Woodford, Old Forester, and then that's where I really kind of clicked into it. Uh, met some great people, learned some great things, had an opportunity to spend time in America and really kind of cut my teeth on the ins and outs of American whiskey. And, and I took it from there, really, and it hasn't stopped. So what year was this when you moved into like an ambassadorial role? Ooh, um, probably around about six years ago now. So I was looking after the UK um, and then looking after some European things. And as Woodford has grown and as the brand has grown, we really started to look at like how it's perceived internationally, which is great. You know, we're sat in Singapore now and Woodford is perceived as an international brand. And we looked at the opportunity for a global brand ambassador, um, somebody who could speak with authority across any different market to understand it, to speak to the bartenders and to understand what they wanted as well. I think that's the main thing for me is helping people uh, get where they want to go. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're behind a bar, if you're working in distribution, if you are a brand ambassador, if you're in sales, it's still hospitality, right? You are still looking after people. It's how we can help people get where they want to go. And if we can do that with Woodford as a vehicle, then great. And that's truly what I believe. It's forging those relationships that go further and further. What made you jump from uh, being the bar to a brand ambassador role? Um, nothing made me. It was very natural. I love being behind the bar. And fortunately, I mean, we're going to make some, well, I'm going to try and make some drinks tonight. <laughs> Hopefully at a pace that is sufficient for the bar. Um, 
it was just a natural progression. Uh, this role afforded me to, A, pursue something that I was passionate about, which was American whiskey, and also afforded me travel to meet different people, different cultures, see how different drinks were being made, but also to really get under the skin of American whiskey, to be in the distillery, to be in the lab, uh, to talk about sensory aspects, production aspects, things that aren't as glamorous as people would be led to believe. So to really meet the infrastructure of people and to really immerse yourself in what you're talking about. So you've seen a brand that started fairly recently in terms of history. Mm. Would you say it's a fair assessment to say that you had a quite important role into the development of this brand and the perception of it globally? Um, I would like to think so. I mean, nobody is bigger than a brand. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how we drive everything. And I think for a brand to do well, you have to have good people behind it. It's good characters, good stories, um, and not even heritage or history, but just things that people connect with. Um, and we're really lucky at Woodford. We have some great people. I'm also afforded very close access to those people. And it's not really close access, it's they're genuine friends. So that makes life so much easier. So when you talk about something, you talk about the people or, you know, the cat that they own or the time you help them sweep leaves out of their front drive or, you know, it's a very human connection. And that's what people identify with. Yes, it's very well. You have a brand. Yes, it's shiny and you want to sell bottles, you want to sell cases. But if you can't communicate that human element of it and why you're doing what you're doing, then I think you've lost what a brand should really be. Is there a lot of traveling involved for you? Heaps of travel. <laughs> heaps and heaps of travel. This has been really good, actually, because I had a day to acclimatize in Singapore, which is a city I really love. So it's nice to go and see old friends. It's nice to go and see new things. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of travel, but it's about how you handle yourself, um, how you look after yourself as well. It's really important. It's an amazing way to see the world as well. Do you find it difficult to stabilize yourself with the amount of traveling you do? Yeah, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I think the biggest thing is knowing when to say no. Uh, it's about finding your own comfort. For me, personally, I mean, everybody has their own different way. But, you know, unpacking the right way or preparing by looking at the weather or where the closest coffee shop is or whether you, you can go and work out close to it or if you have a gym or not, packing your running shoes or allowing yourself time to do normal things is really important. And that way you work better, you get the best out of yourself and you get the best presentation of what you're trying to do while you're there. I think it's very easy to slip into um, uh, quite a negative cycle when you're traveling. So for me, just be positive, make sure you have time for yourself and uh, try to have fun. Like, you know, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. This whole thing should be fun and exciting. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Absolutely. So where are you based now in terms of where do you live? Where's home? Uh, home is a complicated one. Um, so my my other half lives in Kentucky. I'm based in the UK. I travel a great deal. So I would say I'm between Kentucky and the UK most of the time and then traveling in between. But we shall see what the future holds. Like, would you have seen yourself doing this job when you started, when you joined this industry? Or like, what did you study? You mentioned you did some studies. Yeah, I did advertising and marketing. So that always fascinated me. Brands have always fascinated me. My mum was actually a buyer. My granddad was a buyer. So they were always involved with people. I remember when I was very little, actually. It's quite sweet memory. I always remember they had dinner parties and I was fascinated by it. The fact that people got dressed up and they came and they had drinks before they came in. They had food and it was a real convivial atmosphere. And I always used to stay up late. I used to take their coats and I used to take their drinks orders when I was very, very young. And that was something that really fascinated me. So I always knew, yeah, I wanted to do something different. I didn't know this was the path that I would take. 
but when I got involved in American whiskey and I got involved in Brown Foreman, it was it's still a family-owned company. And when you look at the history and the heritage and the way they conduct themselves and the brands, and it was it was just a really nice route to go down. And you know, nine times out of ten, it's always a positive experience, and it's forever learning as well. So. Yes, I kind of knew, and and no, I didn't know, but I could never have hoped for this. I'm truly very happy, and you know, not many people get afforded this opportunity. So, for that, I'm really thankful. Now, a quick question in regards to your travels. Considering that you visited uh, so many countries and so many different places, you're going to ask me what my favorite one is. No, I'm going to ask (laughs) you if you were if you wanted to open your own bar, which market do you think would be the best one for your bar? Oof. You can't ask someone which one's your favorite country because every country is different. Exactly. Right? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's good because I always get asked. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Um, I really don't know. There's a lot of bars that I would probably like to model on, bars that I respect um, and things that they do well. But that's because they do well because they're in that city or the people there. Um, I don't know. I think if I had my like complete opportunistic moment, I would probably just like to open a really nice little pub somewhere like in the English countryside or maybe a little whiskey bar in Kentucky. But, you know, that's that's not the end goal at all. Mm-hmm. Who knows what, what the future holds? But, yeah, I, I, I really don't know. It's not something I've thought about, to be honest. But I love the idea of having a pub. I'm a big fan of going to the pub. Yeah, that's where your roots are, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like English countryside. You're going to have mm-hmm. a decent pint of beer. Um, and it's the same kind of thing. It's the same as going to a beautiful hotel bar or an amazing speakeasy or an independent bar that the ethos is still the same it's people it's community it's hospitality it's looking after somebody but there's something about a little fireplace and a pub and a nice pint of beer that's just right so you have joined this company as a brand ambassador about six years ago mm-hmm. uh, things have changed a lot yeah in terms uh, not only how this industry is evolved in the, the past six years but in the meaning of what a brand ambassador is supposed to be how did this shape up for you? Did your role change drastically? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's changed. It changes every year, to be honest. What the industry needs are, what the brand needs are, what the company needs are, and also how the brand grows, um, how you talk to people, what you want to talk about. I would say the bedrock of it, uh, the foundation is is always why we do what we do. You know, not why we're better. You know, that's not the way we talk about it. We talk about our process how we do it, why we do it, and what the end result is. And for me, that always comes down to flavor. It doesn't matter what's in, you know, the, the quality of the glass or the label or the cork, that liquid that's in the bottle, that's why you do it. It's about utilizing that flavor and working with people and also applying yourself to different markets. Like Singapore is going to be different to Barcelona. Barcelona is going to be different to Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is going to be different to Paris. So that is is also something that's really exciting because you have different flavors, different people, different ethoses, different bars. But the one thing that remains constant for me is a brand. You know, the whiskey is not going to change. So it's getting people excited about it, excited about the category as well. It's not just about Woodford. Um, I want American whiskey to do well. I want bourbon whiskey to do well, rye whiskey, Tennessee whiskey. I want all whiskey to do well. And I want people to be excited by it. And that's really why I do what I do every day. So from a bar perspective, uh, I mean, being on the other end of it, uh, the way I say it is that there are two different kinds of brand ambassadors. There's the brand ambassador, for lack of a better term. Yeah. There's the people who believe in a specific brand and believe in what they're trying to sell. And then there's people who see the brand ambassador role as an escape from the late hours. And yeah, the yeah, I understand that. What recommendations would you give to someone who wants to move into this side of the our industry? 
Um, I think first and foremost is not to look at it like a way out. And I think that's a, a real big thing for young bartenders. They think, you know, you can do your time on the bar for three, four years, and then you're almost like, that's it. Now you expect it to progress into that. And you don't want to be chopping and changing. So if you're going to be the spokesperson and the face of a brand, it's something you truly have to believe in. You have to know inside out not only the brand, but the category. And it's a big commitment. Like, you know, I've been with Woodford for coming up to seven years now. And I've grown with the brand. So it's something that I truly see a very long runway with. It's something that I've committed to for the future. Um, whereas some people, as you quite rightly say, look at it as a way out, the long hours. I'm not going to lie to you. It's still long hours. <laughs> <laughs> You're still, you get up at nine o'clock and you do your emails and your admin and you do your day-to-day you know, work life. And then you go and do you know, extra stuff as well. So there's a great deal of stuff. But the beauty is every day is different. Um, the same as bartending you know you meet new people every day you're making new drinks every day it's the same it's the same as this we're just very fortunate that we're all in this together in every kind of aspect so it's it's constantly learning learning from other people learning from your peers and and that's the nice thing you know we always say um from a work perspective like there is no end game because the game never ends in terms of development of the brand, uh, you mentioned that you've been working with them for six years and you mentioned that you contributed towards the development of it. In what way do you think you have helped the brand come to the point where they are? Is it more about creating the sort of connection with the consumers or with the trade or is it more about genuine feedback coming from you in terms of what you can taste in terms of the liquid? It's a bit of everything, to be honest. And the beauty of it, because it's a global role, is coming back and saying, for example, let's look at the Asian market and what we've done in Singapore who we've worked with, uh, how people have been receptive, what the level of education is, knowledge, etc. Uh, but then, obviously, Europe is going to be very different. So we've grown as a brand, and we've, we've looked at different cocktail trends. We've looked at what kind of drinks we want to own, which is impossible because nobody's ever going to own a drink. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's more focused about different areas. And, you know, for example, we look at the Kentucky Derby, biggest horse race in the world. How can we capitalize on that? That's our roots, horse racing, bourbon whiskey, Kentucky. So how do we use that to the best of our ability? But also, how do we connect with the trade? Like, and that's what I meant earlier when I said it's personal relationships. It's not going to be the same for, you know, mobile downstairs as it is going to be for the dog and duck in West Sussex. It's going to be different people, different things. And that, to me, is the beauty of hospitality and this role is finding a way to work with people and helping them get where they want to go. And if we can use Woodford as a vehicle for that, great. So I like to think that's how I've helped with the brand. And then obviously the more you travel, the more people you meet, the better connections you have. And I think there is really no one place you can lock it down to now because it truly is a global cocktail culture. And that can only be a good thing for the drinks industry. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. You mentioned you work with a lot of different markets and I'm sure there are all sorts of barriers, like as you mentioned, different levels of education as yeah. well as language barriers. Is there anything that you can share with us that you use to try to overcome these barriers? Uh, a translator. <laughs> <laughs> Step number one. Step number one, always get a translator <laughs> just in case. Uh, yeah, there are different things. I think the liquid always does a lot of the talking for you. Uh, if people appreciate good products, you know, when you drink it, you get excited because it's good. Um, but I think more often than not, it's just trying to be yourself and, and try and interact with people. That's the nicest thing for me. I mean, you're not going to please everybody. You know, you could be the nicest peach in the world, right, juicy, ready to go. But some people don't like peaches. So, you know, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. But 
on the whole, everybody is receptive because it's educational, it's fun, you're trying nice whiskey, you know, it's a good thing to do. And more often than not, um, I think we're more lucky now that the level of education that's provided to people is beyond anything anyone could ever imagine like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember when I used to go to seminar, it wasn't even called a seminar then, it was just like a presentation or whatever. But we didn't get it very often, so when you could go and do it, it was a luxury. Now, you know, you have people that are willing to come and talk to you every day, if possible. So my advice would just be to do it. Do everything you can get your hands on, because education is, is key, and it, it goes to making a better-adjusted, well-rounded overview of the industry. Having uh, worked with the people that you mentioned before, and of course, having, followed the, having started your career in a bar, naturally, you've seen other people progressing in the bar career. Do you regret making the switch? No, I don't, because these guys are doing crazy things that I could never imagine now. I've just seen your menu downstairs and the glassware and the ice and, God, it's, it's taken over. It's, it's gone so much further than when I was behind a bar. We used to call it BC bartending before Cranberry. Okay. It was that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So I put I myself. Never heard of that expression. That's I put awesome. myself firmly in the BC category. <laughs> okay. You know when you used to put like red currants on drinks, okay, and okay, it would okay. blow people's minds. <laughs> or you used to use an LSA glass. It was wow. groundbreaking. <laughs> now people use lemon balm and rotavabs, and I'm all for that. I mean, foundations in the classic, yes, but you know what people are doing now is staggering. So I'm kind of relieved because I would have to learn bartending all over again. Uh, however, my classics are still good, so that's all right. That's the most important bit, is it? Exactly. You know? And I'm looking forward to trying some crazy stuff tonight downstairs. Fantastic. In terms of uh, brand ambassadors and brand roles, a huge part of your uh, job is be became all these like bar shows, bar weeks, mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, how do you feel about the current state of this sort of bar events? Are there too many of them or not enough of them? Or would you like to have more or less? Um, I think it's a good adjusted amount at the moment. I mean, you have your, what I would consider industry standard events that are your go-tos, your things like Balkan from Berlin, Brooklyn, Tales of the Cocktail, uh, Cocktails and Spirits. Yes, there are established ones, but yes, there, of course, there's always room for new ones. And we were discussing it earlier. When you look at some of the smaller events, yeah, you're not going to get you know thousands of people. But you have to remember the reason they're doing them is because they're trying to progress the industry. They're trying to progress bartending, beverage alcohol as an industry within their country. So it always comes from a positive place. It's not like, oh, there's another one of these. And I just think it's being clever with your time and how you plan where you're going to go and what you're going to go to as a brand, as a person, as managing your time and your health. And so, yeah, there's, it's only a good thing, right, that more people are discussing this. Because if you look at, uh, let's say, the food industry and you look at chefs and you look at all these, there are thousands of different events and there will be the same for drinks. It's just being particular about where you are and what you're doing. You know, one of the interesting things about talking with a person who works in the industry like you do, but it's not tied to a specific outlet, it's to hear what is your opinion about the current award system that there is in the industry. Because you, your skin is not in a game, but you are <laughs> in the industry, so you get to understand it the same way that yeah. we do. Is this something that you think is positive for the industry? You know, it's always nice to receive positive acclaim from your peers. Uh, that's never going to be a bad thing. I would never want to disappoint people. Um, you could run a cocktail competition for 400 people across the world and one person wins. That means 399 people are going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, I think there might be a better way to be slightly more inclusive of things like that. But 
you know, you are always judged by how different people rate you. That's going to be the same in anything. Like, is this menu good? Is this drink good? Uh, do you like this person? It's the same. People have judged everything forever. Um, so it's not not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. But uh, it's always nice to be able to measure stuff. And it's good to have some sort of system. But for me, you know, I haven't even judged. I've never sat mm-hmm. on any of those panels. So it's not for me to really comment on. It's how they structure it. And it's how they deem it. And you know what? There are a lot of awards. So one, you may not win. But the other one, you may win. So it's, it's a bit of a catch-22. Because when you look at things like lists you know one of the things that can can be quite controversial is the fact that by putting things in a list it's not that there's only one person wins and 399 no i know yeah somebody's going to be 20th somebody's going to be 50th yeah i get that um but i could write a list now of 20 places that i love and other people wouldn't agree with it Mm -hmm. so either way there's there's no right or wrong obviously we all strive for excellence every day and if you do the best job you can you're happy with what you do that's all that really matters for me anyway one of the things that I loved about Taste of the Cocktails when I went there for the first time was that there is a, a large number of awards that are given away and also the fact that it's divided into like United States and the rest of the world. Yeah, that's a good platform. Yeah. I think it's amazing because it becomes like this massive industry celebration. And yes, you have your champions that win something, but at the end of the day, when you're in it, it feels like everyone is winning something. But you know, right? you've got four, five, six hundred people there together. So it's exactly everybody think, experiences mm. the whole thing together. That's... You know, it's community, it's inclusive, and you don't really feel like anybody's lost because you're all celebrating everybody else's success. That's the beautiful thing. One of the things that I love is to see brands, uh, rather than focusing 100% of the budget that they have towards having cocktail competitions, there's this sort of like trying to create community events, right? Like the Bacardi softball and all these sort of things that they do, mm-hmm. where there's, it's, there's not a winner per se, it's more of an event where everybody has fun, right? Yeah, and that's something that the UK do very well. Um, you know, Bacardi Grand Foreman is, is UK-based. Um, they do some great stuff there. And yeah, it's about bringing people together. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to be competition. I always c- try to communicate it to people that it's, it's community, not competition. Mm-hmm, okay. Like, bring people together and everybody's a winner. As, as cliche as it sounds, it's true. Mm-hmm. Because everybody wants to celebrate the industry and have a good time together. That's it. And also, as you said, like the more we work together, uh, the better we can make this industry. The more customers we get, the more yeah. everybody's happy. Right? Uh, it's the more positive people looking in. Because re- what people don't realize is that you know we're a small percentage of it. The, the mainstay is the consumer, the guest, and they outnumber us Absolutely. nine to one, easy. Mm-hmm. So the more positive we are, the better we are as an industry. The more fun they're going to have, the better it's going to be for business, for, you know, for everyday life. So it's, it can only be a good thing. So being myself a uh, not a BC uh, bartender. You are uh, definitely yeah, not a no, BC bartender. I, <laughs> I only have experience with the current stage of relationships in between brands and bars. Do you think that bars and brands are more involved with each other nowadays than they used to be in the past? Because nowadays like you have all sorts of financial ties to brands with, because you get support for menus, you get support for promotional events, uh, trips, all sorts of things. Yeah, of course. And that obviously is a big part of it because at the end of the day, it's a business. Mm-hmm. And but w- Was it the same in the past? Like, Yeah, it was the same. I think there's, you know, there's huge financial um, rewards of people that tie themselves to brands now. And that's all great. But for me, you have to love the liquid that you're working with. Like you have to truly believe it. And 
One thing that I will say for Woodford is that, you know, we launched in 1996. We are a relatively young bourbon. But the beauty of it was that it was grown in the on-trade. It was almost like a little secret between bartenders because they picked it up with the confidence knowing they liked it. So it was really grown in the trade. It wasn't that we were going in and saying, here you go, here's a load of money or, you know, we'll do this for a menu placement or anything like that. It was a genuine love of liquid. And that's, for me, where it should come from. You should be using it because you love it. Yes, it's great if you get incentives. And yes, it's good to have a relationship with a brand because you help each other. And, you know, that's still hospitality. That's still looking after each other. And it's still growing the industry. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing. It's good to have independence, but it's good to work with people. So it's a, it's more about finding the right balance and what works for you. When you develop a uh, product with Woodford, because you have all these sort of crazy expressions that they come out uh, yeah. every now and then, right? We've got some crazier stuff that we're <laughs> that's hidden away as well. <laughs> oh, there you go. How much of it is aimed at mixing or supporting people into making cocktails? And how much of it is supposed to be drunk by itself? Do you have any of such limitations in your brand? Or? No, not really. And it's a question that I get asked a lot, really. Not so much that one, but it kind of ties into it. Is that how should I enjoy this? How should I drink it? And I love Scotch whiskey. I, I love Irish whiskey. I love all types of whiskey. But there tends to be this, this feeling that you're told how to drink it. And with American whiskey, it's a little bit more relaxed. It's more fun. And I always say, if it's in your glass, you drink it however you want to drink it. You know, it's your glass. I'm not going to tell you how to drink it. Um, certain things that we make, we think about mixability. We think about flavor profile, how it's rounded, how it's balanced. Um, for example, double eights is skewed slightly towards, uh, towards sweet aromatics. Our bourbon is very, very rounded. It's still complex, but it's balanced. So yes, you can mix it. The rye whiskey has a, a lower rye content, so you can mix it in cocktails. You know, all these things come into consideration. We just want to make the best whiskey that we can make. And then we make some other, you know, crazy stuff that's limited and, you know, that specifically is designed to be drunk by itself. Or, yeah, I think you have to have a clear goal with whatever liquid you're going to make. Mm -hmm. But it's ultimately up to whoever orders it to how they drink it. <laughs> whoever pays the bill, right? Yeah, exactly, man. It's in your glass. You pay for it. If you want to put coconut, put coconut. If you want to put pineapple juice in it, put pineapple juice in it. If you want to mix it in a beautiful Manhattan, do that. Like, it's, it's completely up to you. Throughout the expressions that you had, you played with some uh, great uh, cask combinations. Mm. Which one was one of the combinations that really surprised you? Oh, uh, well, I, I can't speak for it because Chris Morris, our master distillery, is a genius. And he's done some amazing stuff. But one of the ones we did was a uh, Sonoma Cotrea Chardonnay finish, uh, which was just, I still can't get my head around it. It's just a crazy flavor. It's, it's whiny and tropical at the same time, but it's still bourbon. Um, we've done some great, great ones like that. Our Double Oats whiskey, we've done a distillery series, which is Double Double Oats. So it's an extra year mm -hmm. in the second barrel. That was very interesting. Um, very, very full on, very decadent, very rich, elegant whiskey. But yeah, I think that's the beauty of where we are as a category now. It doesn't have to be some old dude in a straw hat and a rocking chair by a creek sipping whiskey. You know, we're sat looking over this beautiful view in Singapore and you could go up to that rooftop and have a lovely old fashioned. We can go downstairs to your gorgeous bar and have a lovely Manhattan, you know. There is no limit anymore where it used to be American whiskey is sipping by the creek. Mm -hmm. Old dude, that's it. <laughs> so now we're, we're pushing the boundaries. There's innovation and our master's collection is doing that. Our distillery series is doing that. Double Oats is doing that. 
Um, different whiskey companies are also pushing the boundaries. I think it's only a good thing to be creative and, and to push it forward. But at the core of that is still bourbon. It's still Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Where do you see bourbon in five years? I honestly have no idea. There are so many complications, so many different people doing different things. There are so many different small distilleries producing some really interesting stuff. So I see the, the category flourishing. If you look at the gin category in the last sort of five years, everybody thought that boom would kind of die off a little bit, and it's just going from strength to strength. And what you've really seen is it filtering down to the mainstream, which is the biggest thing. And I think more people will start to get involved in the American whiskey category. Like it's still super hot, um, so I can only see it going from strength to strength, really. And I hope it does, because it makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think uh, micro distilleries are, are increasing the market share? or uh... They account for a very small percentage of, of American whiskey as a category. If you look at Kentucky as a whole, you've still got 95% of the world's bourbon coming out of Kentucky. So that's a huge amount from one small state. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have micro distilleries. I think it's awesome, because some of these guys are really super creative, doing some cool stuff. Um, so that's only going to do good things for the industry. And I hope they do get bigger because they're striving to get bigger, to produce more liquid. Um, and it's hard as well, you know. It takes time to put stuff in a barrel, to lay it down, to not make money on it for four, five, six years. Um, it takes time to do that kind of thing. So that's what, I, for me, the magic of, of whiskey is. It's time, it's understanding, it's forecasting, uh, projection of what you want to do in the future. Um, it's just, it's a cool thing. It's something that I really love about it. You know, as a bartender, sometimes uh, I have some ideas and then, you know, you just start thinking in your head, how am I going to do this? And then a month down the line, you see somebody else that does what you were thinking. <laughs> you think, damn, you beat me to it. Is there any, did you ever had such moment with whiskey where you thought like, oh, I really wish we did this expression or this thing and then someone beat you to it? Well, at Woodford, we're pretty lucky because we've done everything first. So far. <laughs> <laughs> if you speak to Chris, he'll tell, we, we were the first people to do a double oak whiskey. We were the first people to do this finish, that finish. But that's, you know, that's him. That's that's being creative. It's being innovative. And I'm sure there'll be people that beat us to stuff. And, and it's, it's not a race. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm all for everybody doing their own creative platforms. Yeah, I understand it might be frustrating sometimes when you see something, but... You know, nobody's reinventing the wheels like fashion. Everything comes around again. So, you know, we'll see Tiki come back around or we'll see speakeasies come back around, you know, whatever. It's things go in phases. So I wouldn't worry too much. Great. So last question I ask everyone, if you had to choose your very last drink, what would your very last drink be? It's a very difficult question, but I, I get a lot of interesting answers because a lot of people contextualize it, which is great. I don't know. Just a drink by myself? like uh, you, you choose. Your last drink could be in any possible scenario. Um, my last drink would probably be a gin and bitter lemon with my um, grandfather who passed away a long time ago. He was my absolute inspiration and idol for dressing, manners, how to conduct yourself in life. Um, just somebody who I really look up to. And he used to drink gin and bitter lemon. So I would probably do that with him. Oh, that's a very cool story. Great. It was nice talking to you. Thank, Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Amazing. Thank you so much. Cheers, man. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Tom Vernon. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our hashtag Classic Tuesday videos every Tuesday 
where we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are Unjiggered Under Dash Media on Instagram, and you can follow our accounts at mmmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.